Good morning again, everybody. Um, we're going to come uh, to our teaching, to God's Word now. Um, maybe just to let you know, through the summer, we're not going to be following a series in our teaching. Um, we're going to be just each week uh, looking at different passages and themes. Um, and I'll be doing some of those and uh, some others will as well. Um, maybe the last couple of weeks in the book of Jonah, uh, we, we were looking at some really big, challenging themes. And maybe this morning... I want to talk about something quite small, uh, but that I find maybe equally challenging. Um, there, there are so many things that I love about the way Jesus teaches. Um, I love the way he tells stories uh, so often, uh, but I also love the way he often points to something we can see, something visual, something commonplace, uh, and uses that to help our understanding. So he'll say, consider the birds of the air, or look at this fig tree, um, and in the story I want to read this morning, um, he points to something uh, to help us understand. I'm going to read the first few verses of Matthew chapter 18. And it says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And I want to pause just there because I, I love, even before we get to what Jesus says, um, I love kind of trying to imagine this scene, these disciples arguing about who is the greatest. And Jesus places a little child among them. Uh, and I find myself wondering, even before he spoke, what impact did that have? We can kind of imagine the disciples quiet, quieting down, wondering what's going on, looking at this little child. I wonder what they were thinking and feeling. Um, but this is what Jesus said. He said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus uh, begins by saying, truly, I tell you. Uh, that's, a, that's kind of a formula uh, that Jesus uses in the old translations. It's verily, verily, I say unto you. Um, but this is what Jesus says before a statement of kind of extra importance. It's a way of saying, lean in, pay attention. This is going to be important. And then this is what he says. And these are the words I want to really focus on. Unless you change and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and I really want this morning just to reflect on what those words might mean. Uh, maybe first of all this, our, our minds are maybe inclined when we hear the word heaven, we're, we're inclined to jump to the assumption that this is about going to heaven when you die. But actually, if you remember, the heart of Jesus' teaching as he walked around Galilee was that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. You can read that back in Matthew chapter 4. His message was about the present availability of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, to those who believe in him. So when Jesus speaks about entering the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about entering into a certain kind of life now that will also last beyond death. He's talking about living under the rule and reign of God sharing in the life of God, being in God's presence, hearing God's voice, sharing in his light and his love 
Um, he's talking about life in all its fullness, kingdom life. So Jesus wants his disciples to enter into that kind of life today. Jesus wants you to enter into that kind of life today. But he says that, that if we want to enter into it and enjoy this kingdom life, we need to change. We need to turn and become like little children. And I guess I've been puzzling over what this might mean. What does it mean to become like little children? Uh, maybe there's a couple of things I think it probably doesn't mean. Um, I don't think it means becoming childish or infantile, kind of having a tantrum every time we don't get our own way, or eating fish fingers for dinner every day and refusing all vegetables, or watching Peppa Pig, or asking someone else to tie our shoelaces. It's not about regressing to childishness. Um, I also don't think it means becoming innocent and pure. That's, that's where some people go with this. Um, and I guess some people have this view of children, that they are entirely innocent and pure. Um, and I guess there's some truth in that. They haven't yet been tainted and corrupted by the world and wounded by life in the way that adult, we as adults have. But maybe I would suggest um, any of us who have spent any time with young children will tell you that they can be delightful, but they can also be at times selfish and mean and impatient and unkind. When they're good, they're very, very good. And when they're bad, they're horrid. Uh, and that starts very early. So I don't think when Jesus says you must become like children, he's saying you must become innocent and pure. Um, so I've kept puzzling over what it might mean. And there's four words that I want to share with you this morning that have come to mind as I've reflected on what it might mean to become like a little child. And uh, maybe you'll have others you want to add uh, to the list as well. But the first one is this, uh, that little children have a sense of wonder. They live with their eyes wide open and they're constantly amazed and surprised and delighted by things, even very ordinary things. You hear a little child saying, look, a tractor, look, a balloon, look, a worm. And they get very excited by things that are very ordinary. Um, you and I know as we get older, we lose that sense of wonder. Things become familiar and we become kind of jaded. And we trudge along with our head down in a rush, thinking about important, serious, grown-up things. And we stop noticing that we are actually surrounded by marvels and wonders. Um, and so in this passage, I hear Jesus inviting us, first of all, to recover our sense of wonder. Um, G.K. Chesterton uh, writes about this wonderfully, and, and he suggests that we can actually speak of God himself being childlike in this sense. Um, and there's a passage where he talks about uh, the way that children will say, do it again. We, we do something with a balloon or a toy or a whatever, and they say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it until they're nearly dead, but the child still wants it again. And Chesterton says this, I love this. He says, it's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy 
for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. I love that, that idea of God's delight in the things he's created. Um, God has a sense of wonder, if we can say that. Jesus can restore our sense of wonder, and that's the first invitation I'd love us to hear this morning. Um, just as one wee comment uh, before we move on, um, I, I do think um, this sense of wonder in our children is under threat from different directions, uh, definitely from too much time staring at screens where they're passively consuming the product of someone else's imagination. Um, and also maybe from uh, the, the way we program their lives too much, too much organized activity. Uh, there's a weird way in which we actually need to allow our children time and space to be bored. And then their imagination and their creativity and their wonder will be ignited. And before long, they'll be looking for bugs and they'll be inventing imaginary worlds and they'll be making up games using whatever is to hand. Um, I think probably the same is true for us as adults. Too much screen time over busy lives, we lose our sense of wonder. That's the first thing. Uh, second thing is this about becoming like little children, uh, is about simplicity. And I guess I'm thinking here more specifically about questions of faith. Um, children can come out with some amazing and profound things. Uh, I don't want to belittle or patronize anything about their, their expressions of faith, which can be astonishing. But they do tend to approach faith in a very direct way, in a very simple way. They take things at face value. The faith of a child usually is something like this. God made me. God loves me. Jesus died for me. When we die, we go home to be with Jesus. God loves everyone. When I pray, God hears me. When I do something wrong, I ask him and he forgives me. When I'm sad, I can ask God and he'll comfort me. When I'm finding something hard, I can ask God and he'll help me. And they also expect miracles and therefore see miracles often around them. Um, and then what happens? We get older and things become much more complicated. And we come up against kind of big questions, uh, some of them involving mainly the head, some of them also involving very much the heart. Uh, questions about science and faith or about predestination and free will or about why God allows suffering in the world, about parts of the Bible we find troubling and confusing, about terrible things that have been done in the name of Jesus, about prayers that don't seem to receive an answer, about faith and sexuality, about hell and judgment. And then on top of all those questions, life gets more complicated as well. Thinking about money and bills and mortgages and pensions and uh, for some of us thinking about marriage and family and raising children and thinking about our changing world out there and politics and culture. How do we respond to all that complexity? Uh, some of us maybe work very hard at finding answers to all those questions that we can put in neat little boxes. And we build cathedrals of ideas, complex systems of theology where we have an answer for every one of those questions. Some of us, maybe if we're honest, just get a bit overwhelmed by the complexity and we feel a bit bruised and confused. And yet in both cases, whether we are adults who think we have all the answers or adults who are overwhelmed, um, we've lost something. We've lost the joy 
of that childlike faith. We've lost our first love. We find ourselves nostalgic, actually missing the days of childlike faith, that simple trust and confidence in God's love and goodness. I don't know if you can relate to that. I think in this passage, Jesus also invites us to recover the simplicity of a child, to let our great cathedrals of theology fall and build again a simple house on the rock, and maybe to bring our bruised and confused hearts to him, or overwhelmed to him, and come back to the heart of worship, which is all about him. Um, I don't think that means throwing out all the questions we have or ignoring the difficult things. It's good to think and wrestle and wonder and puzzle, but it's maybe about holding those things a little more lightly, uh, being okay with the fact that we can't answer everything, and coming back to something simple at the center. Um, a couple of examples that come to mind. The Apostle Paul was a man of amazing intellect, and he, um, he, he writes things in his letters that are very deep and profound. And I love the fact that even the Apostle Peter, writing in 2 Peter 3, talks about Paul and says his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Isn't that a great verse? Um, even Peter couldn't understand some of what Paul was writing. And yet, the Apostle Paul could also at times arrive at these moments of great simplicity and simply say, all that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's Galatians 5. Or he could say, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Or he could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It seems like there was all these complexities, but Paul could break through to those moments of childlike simplicity. Um, maybe another example, Carl, Karl Barth was one of the great Christian intellects of the 20th century. Uh, and he wrote an astonishing kind of volume of theology. That's his full church dogmatics. If you set them out in a set, that's what they looked like. Um, some of which are definitely very hard to understand. And yet when Karl, Karl Barth was asked in 1962 how he would summarize the essence of the millions of words he had written, you know what he said? He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That was it. There's something to be said for just allowing Jesus, allowing God to bring us back to that place of simplicity. Third thing is this about becoming like little children, is that Little children have a tremendous curiosity. Um, any of you who've spent any time with little kids know that they ask question after question after question. What's that and who's that and how does that work? And uh, maybe especially why and why and why. Um, but this is how they, they learn and discover and grow. They ask because they're hungry for learning. Um, as we grew up, something kind of strange happens. Uh, I think we become embarrassed to admit that we don't know something. And we start to pretend to know more than we do. It's one of the weirdest things we do. We stop asking questions and we start giving opinions. Um, and it's something I've really noticed in this season of coronavirus. Um, most of us tuning in this morning are not scientists or doctors or virologists or immunologists. But suddenly, everyone seems to have an opinion. We've all become experts. 
we read a few articles, we watch a couple of videos, and we become very certain about our view. And we talk on about herd immunity and our numbers and second waves and flattening curves like we, we know what we're talking about. And we talk very certainly about what the government should be doing and which country in the world is getting it right uh, and which one's getting it wrong. Is it New Zealand or Sweden or uh, whoever? And we talk very certainly about what's likely to happen next month or next year. And we talk very certainly about what everyone should be doing and how we all should be behaving. And as I say all that, um, I'm not getting at anybody. I, I have joined in with all of that spouting of opinions. Um, but I want to make a public confession this morning that I have no idea what I'm talking about, right? I am one of those ridiculous adults who pretends to know and understand far more than I do. And so for me, as well as for you, I wonder what would it be like to become like a little child again? And instead of spouting half-baked opinions, ask some questions. When I meet someone who disagrees with me, to ask them why they think that way. And maybe assume that I have something to learn from them. And maybe above all, to be willing to say often, cheerfully, I don't know. What do you think? Um, I think too often we think wisdom means having all the answers, being certain about everything. Um, and as I've got older, I, I no longer think that's true. I actually don't think being certain about everything is a virtue. I think it hides our insecurity and our, our fears. Um, long ago, Socrates, the, the Greek philosopher, said, wisest is he who knows he does not know. There's great wisdom in saying, this is something I don't know about. Um, James, the brother of Jesus, writes in James 3, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it, what does he say, by their killer arguments and their killer put-downs and their um, certain tidy answers. He says, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Not really challenging. Um, I heard someone say once, and it certainly rings true for me, uh, I heard someone say, as I get older, I'm less and less certain about a lot of things and more and more confident of a few simple things uh, that lie at the heart of my faith. I think that's a very liberating perspective. It sets us free to stop battering people with our half-formed opinions and to become curious like a child again uh, and to ask questions, recover our curiosity. Um, so here's the fourth thing. Um, and maybe looking at the context of this passage, this is the most important. I didn't really know what to call this one, but I've called it littleness. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, the disciples were arguing about bigness, about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus placed a little child among them and said, you must become like little children. And he went on to say, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Children are small people in a big world run by the big people. And they know that they're small and they're mostly okay with that, at least till they become teenagers and they start to kick against it. Um, I think this was even more true in the time of Jesus than it is now. In our time, 
um, children have kind of been elevated to a position of great importance. Uh, and the adults in their lives often organize everything around the children and their needs. So the kids might actually get the sense that they are the center of the universe. Um, but in most earlier generations, that wasn't true. Children were to be seen and not heard. The world was run by the big people for the big people and the children were to stay out of the way. They were marginal. They had no status. And so I think we need to get our head around that to understand Jesus says, if you want to enter into this kingdom life, you must be willing to be small. You must be willing to be marginal, to be overlooked, to be forgotten. You must be willing to take the low place. And I want to be really honest and just acknowledge this is really difficult teaching for us because there's always something in us that wants to be noticed and wants to be admired and thought well of. We want to be a big shot. We want to be the big cheese. We want to make a big splash. We want to be sitting in the hall of fame. We want the world to know our name, right? Now, someone uh, might ask this question. And I think this is a good question. Uh, someone might say, I understand that we shouldn't go after worldly fame and applause, but is it not okay to want to make our mark in the world, to want to have impact and influence? And does God not sometimes call Christians to influential positions in government or business or sport or whatever? Um, and I think that that's a really, really good question that I've kind of been uh, wondering about. Um, as I reflect on it personally, I come to this conclusion that even for me, even the desire to be influential can be dangerous for my heart. Um, I think our focus as followers of Jesus needs to be on service, on serving the people God asks us to serve and loving the people God asks us to love and using the gifts we've been given to bless others and then trusting him to look after questions of impact and influence. I think otherwise we get into a lot of trouble. Um, there are two stories in the book of Genesis that, that sit side by side um, that I think make this really clear. Um, in Genesis 11, you remember the story where the people build a tower up to heaven, the Tower of Babel. And it says in that story, they wanted to make a name for themselves, right? That's what they were about. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And that's a dangerous thing and so God intervenes and scatters them. But when you turn the page to Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to be the, the beginning of the people of God. And he says, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. But he also says this, he says, I will make your name great. So in chapter 11, they wanted to make a name for themselves and God uh, scatters them. In chapter 12, God promises Abraham, I will make your name great. And when Abraham died, he, he hadn't actually made much of an impact on the world. Most of the promises God had given him had not yet been fulfilled, but he trusted God and stepped out in faith and played his part. And in the end, God used him to change the course of history. And we still talk about him today um, in all kinds of ways. Um, I think there'll be a lot of surprises when we look back from eternity. And many people who seem to make a big splash will find out that their impact was shallow and short-lived. And many people who seem to live quiet lives on the margin will find out that their impact was deep 
and powerful and went down the generations because they planted seeds which grew into forests and orchards and, and whatever long after they were dead. Um, and so Jesus' teaching asks us this really challenging question. Are you willing to be small? Are you willing to take the low, lowly place and do whatever God asks you to do with a whole heart and trust him with your name and your impact and your influence? If he asks you to stack chairs or clean toilets or wash dishes, if he asks you to visit someone who's difficult or lonely or both, if he asks you to make a meal for someone who's struggling, if he asks you to take care of a child with disabilities, if he asks you to pray faithfully for someone for many years, if he asks you to work with all your heart at a job that you find difficult, that you don't enjoy, if he asks you to show kindness to your most difficult neighbour or colleague, um, are we willing uh, to be small? Um, and sometimes as we trust him and serve, he will lift us up to a position of influence in the world. And sometimes he will ask us to stay on the margins. But either way, we trust him with our name and our fame, our impact and our influence. Um, and those little things, and you can add other examples of small things that God might ask us to do. They're not gonna make the front page of the Times. They're probably not even gonna make the inside pages of the Korean Chronicle, if we're honest. But in the economy of God's kingdom, they matter greatly. At the very end of the passage we read, Jesus says, whoever welcomes one little child in my name welcomes me. So there's one small thing. If we just take the time of day to come down from our grown up level of life and come down to where the child is and just be present to them and give them our time and give them our attention and listen to them and be with them. There's, Jesus seems to be saying in that encounter, we will actually encounter Jesus himself. We have something to learn when we get down on our knees and are just present with our children. Um, whoever welcomes one little child in my name welcomes me. Um, let's pray as we finish uh, this morning. Father, I want to pray, pray that you would take uh, these words of Jesus that we've been reflecting on and that you would sow them deeply in our hearts so that they'll bear fruit. Um, Father, I want to pray you would help us as adults, as grown-ups, um, to learn from little children. Help us to learn what it means to become like a little child. And I want to pray where we've become kind of jaded and cynical, help us to recover our sense of wonder Father, where life has got too complicated and complex and we're overwhelmed, help us to recover the simplicity of childlike faith. Where maybe we've become too certain about too many things that we don't really know about, help us to ask questions and be curious like a child. And Father, help us in our pride where we want to be big and we want to make our mark on the world. Help us to be willing to be small and to do little things with great love and to trust you uh, with the impact and the influence and our name. Help us become like little children. I want to finish with these uh, words from Psalm 131. 
My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, people of God, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Amen.